Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 202. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of the Lend at Fintech conference. Today's show is sponsored by Lendit Fintech Europe 2019, Europe's leading event for innovation in financial services. It's coming up on the 26th and 27th of September in London at the Business Design Centre. We've recently opened registration as well as speaker applications. You can find out more by going to lendit.com slash Europe. We have a fascinating guest on the show today. Giles Andrews has been around fintech since the very beginning. He was one of the co-founders of Zopa back in 2004. Uh, He was CEO for many years, led them through the financial crisis and beyond. And he he was chairman of the board until earlier this year. He is now a, a director there, but has chairman responsibilities at several companies, some of the leading brands in Europe and uh, com- companies like Market Invoice and Credit Tech. He's also uh, chairman of a company called Dynamic Credit, which is a very large lender in the Netherlands, and uh, as well as Bethnal Green Ventures. And he has he has other board responsibilities as well. But in this in this episode, we dig into the the origins of Zopa. We talk a lot about what the team was thinking back then and how that has evolved over time. And, uh, and Giles also gives us his perspective on, uh, on the UK fintech scene today. It was a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Giles. Hi, Peter. Great. So I, I'd like to get these things started. I know you've been in fintech now for just about longer than anybody, but I'd like to go back before that and give us give us some background about what you did in your career before Zopa, if you can remember that far back. I, I'm not that old, Peter. I can remember that far back. And, <laughs> okay. and, and it had nothing to do with financial services or, or technology. Hmm. Uh, so, that, yeah, very different. So, so when I left college, I actually went and worked in the motor industry which was fulfilling a, a sort of childhood ambition, really, to, to, to mess about with cars. I mean, it got a bit more serious than that, but I think that was why I started there. I, I, I had this view that if you followed a passion, then uh, you might end up doing it competently or, or even well. And I got very lucky. I met some interesting people and started a business four or five years in, in my sort of mid-20s. And if you remember this far back, the early 90s, 91, 92, uh, it was a, a very severe recession, particularly in the UK, but, yep. but pretty globally as well. And car businesses were going bust left, right, and centre. And we put together a team that we had a we we we, we took control of a shell company that was listed on the main London Stock Exchange, and used that as a vehicle to build uh, a dealer group, a sort of semi a regional dealer group, so not not a national one, but one that covered probably about a quarter of the country, and built that up over the course of the 1990s and sold it. In the late 90s, and timing was everything. We sort of got in at, at the bottom and managed to sell out reasonably near the top. You never pick the top, but sell out reasonably near the top. Mm-hmm. And had an absolute ball. Really enjoyed it. And I think scratched the itch that um, I then sort of decided I didn't need to spend the rest of my life uh, working with motor cars. But I'd had a, had, a, had a really good time along the way. And, I, and I, it's something I always say to people, uh, young, uh, terribly concerned about what they do for a living and what career they pick. And I think they tend to often pick very conventional, safe choices that 
that maybe their parents or their or their uh, university careers officers recommend. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you if you if you go a bit more left field and just find something that you're really passionate about, the chances are you will do it better, and you might even stand out. Right. And with a bit of luck along the way, I think you can you can get a great training in business. Because at the end of the day, when you start out, your first job, the work you're doing is not that exciting on the whole, whatever it is. So if you're, at least you're doing it in an environment that, you, that stimulates you and you find exciting, then uh, you can put up with a bit more. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, no regrets. Really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. So then, so then how, how did you go from that to being a co-founder of Zopa? What was sort of the, what was the genesis of, of, you know, like the formation of the company? Well, I took myself off to business school. So having had a great time uh, in the motor industry, there's, I suppose the one frustration I had was I hadn't really used too much of my brain. <laughs> so I had a yearning to go back to to, to doing a bit of studying, and I, and I took myself off to business school uh, in France and also had a bit of a yearning to live in France for a year, so that's, uh, that, that was good fun. And one thing, I met some really interesting people, one of whom went on to become a co-founder of Zopa with me, or five years later, or five or six years later, I think, to be precise. But also, I think one of the great joys of business school is if people are at a sort of a crossroads in their career, it gives you a chance to think about what you want to do. And I actually ended up a few years later running a business of my own that was doing some consultancy advice, sort of strategic consultancy advice into the motor industry, which was obviously something I understood quite well. And I think business school had given me the tools and techniques to at least credibly present a consultancy service, but also doing a bit of angel investing and helping startups raise money. And I suppose that was my first introduction to, to the startup world. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say the fintech world because it didn't exist. And it wasn't typically in financial services. They were quite traditional businesses. But they were coming out of the, out of the dot-com era. So there was, there was technology involved. And, and I found actually the startup scene really interesting and made a few investments, did okay, decided that that wasn't for me. I wasn't going to become a, a lifelong investor. I didn't have enough money to do it properly. Right. And in that in that period of of helping startups raise money, I got a phone call from a guy called James Alexander, who who I'd been to Intel with, who who said, well, he and a number of people had just left the digital bank Egg, which was the first online bank in the UK, and they had a mad idea, which had a working title of Rialto, which is a bridge in Venice linking two market squares <laughs> and it was it was uh, eBay for money it was a uh, it was this idea of, of peer-to-peer lending that I thought was just extraordinary and uh, so I, I joined that outfit in very early 2004 not yet called Zopa and joined them actually to lead a project to help raise the first funding for the company and we hit the streets in London in mid sort of summer 2004 at a time when the VC community was just beginning to wake up mm-hmm. from the dot-com crash and the better players still had some money. I mean, no one raised any money for a while, but the better, the better and bigger funds still had some funds left over from, from the dot-com boom days. And we're just beginning to think about deals. And of course, what had happened in the, in the you know, this sounds terribly historic now, but what had happened in the dot-com boom was huge amounts of capacity of being built up, uh, which then didn't get used as everything crashed and burned. But, but leaving behind some infrastructure that allowed people to build what was then called Web 2.0 businesses, which were sort of you know, collaborative businesses that depended on their users for content. So YouTube, if you like, came out of that, that era. Mm-hmm. Um, and businesses which were more interactive. So there was a trend going on that consumers were beginning to adopt the internet in a different way. It wasn't just 
e-commerce that was, people were beginning to interact more deeply. You, you saw the beginnings of social networks. I mean, the leading social network in the UK at the time was, was MySpace. Well, friends, you reunited initially, and then MySpace, mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, Facebook. But people's behavior was changing, enabled by technology. And the team had this radical thought of, could you apply those changes to the world of financial services, which, if you think back to 2004, was a pretty state affair. And, and the online banks had simply taken a green screen from a call center uh, and stuck a web, web, uh, you know, a web interface on it and called it an online business. But the, the online financial services world had no interactivity with its customers. and Its customers weren't really involved. They were passive takers of a product. And, and I think the radical thought that came before the business model of fiscal lending was, can we look at financial services using this new enabling technology to build a business that customers are more involved in. Mm -hmm. uh, and from that thinking came the, the business model that we all know today as PSP Lending. Right, I know it's, it's it's fascinating to sort of to listen to that because it really it really is you know you you, you thought of it before anybody else. Um, I mean, others I know are thinking about it independently, or elsewhere in the world, but hadn't 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 launched anything. But it was it was interesting that that you guys were the first. And did you have? I mean, do you have any idea? I mean, what was when you, we were first getting started? You just, I presume, you just wanted to try and create a viable business. You weren't thinking this was going to be the start of this massive worldwide movement. I mean, did you have any idea the impact of what uh, what you were doing? Uh, well, yes and no. So, so we certainly didn't think in global movements. No, uh, but we did think we'd build a huge business because you know, the arrogance of youth um, and the naivety of, of the startup world, we, we, we just simply thought we had a better model. And, uh, you know, once you, beyond the sort of technology enablement I talked about before, um, the actual business model, the financial linking of, of people who have some money to invest and people who want to borrow, we thought was radically simple. And the simplicity would drive value uh, and technology would help drive that value and also to drive great service. And we, we just thought this was better and, and we would probably be launching a bid for you know, Barclays Bank in a few years' time. Um, <laughs> so we were, we were hugely ambitious for, for, to build the UK business. But, right. but we didn't think that far beyond that. I mean, we did think uh, we'd like to take the business to the States because the States is a huge market. And at the time, there was no... I mean, Prosper came a, a whole year after we launched in the UK. Right. So there was no hint of anyone doing it in the US. And, and in fact, our choice of, of, of our Series A investor, which was then called Benchmark Capital, now renamed Alderton, but mm -hmm. was Benchmark Capital then, was you know, at the time um, more closely linked to Benchmark in the US. And they, they were the sort of granddaddies of peer-to-peer -peer in the sense that they led the Series A financing of eBay. And in the UK, um, Alderton or Benchmark UK had uh, backed one of the businesses that ended up becoming Betfair. So in fact, they, they had backed Betfair. So, so the, the Routes that led to that particular choice of investor, but we were we were overwhelmed when we because none of us had actually ever really raised venture capital at scale. I mean, I'd, I'd helped some startups raise very small amounts of angel money. None of us had ever raised venture capital at scale, and and we were overwhelmed by the response of London, who uh, the London community. We had you know lots of term sheets, lots of conversations going, because it was a big idea, and and, and I think you know people bought into the enthusiasm and 
energy and ambition of the team. Right, right. Well, one more question before we move forward to today. But I, I, I'm curious about your decision to really focus on the on the prime borrowers back then, um, because that that actually you know, obviously we no one knew there was a financial crisis coming. It, it serves you very very well, and your counterpart in the US, Prosper, really decided that they would open it up for pretty much anybody. So what was what were the what was the thinking behind the focus on prime borrowers? Well, I think it was actually a very controversial decision at the time. So pretty well everybody told us we were wrong. Mm-hmm. So anyone who wanted to sort of lob in some free consultancy or even board members and investors was sort of saying, you know, this subprime lending business has got much higher margins. Surely you should do that. And, and, and we had two reasons why we didn't. So for, well, three reasons, actually. Uh, the first one was that uh, we... We believe quite strongly in the sort of loss aversion theory. Behavioral economics tells you that we all, as humans, as, as, as you know, irrational humans, tend to value losses in a much greater way than we value profits. We sort of bank our profits, but we get very excited about losing money. And given that we were going to be inviting people to lend on a website they'd never heard of, money to strangers on the internet, we figured that building trust would be kind of important. And so that was, I think, quite sensible, and but that's pretty obvious. But but I think the slightly less obvious uh, strand from that is to say that people will get very, very excited when they lose money. I mean, excited in, the ne- in a negative way when they lose money. Mm-hmm. And we just thought that offering people a time, I think, probably a 6% gross return that would turn into a 5% net return with you know very low level of defaults would be a much more popular proposition than uh, uh, something that lent out at 15% and had 8% defaults and a 7% you know, net margin, mm-hmm. even though the 7 is bigger than the 5, because people will get really, really angry about losing money. Right. Um, plus, operationally, as a startup, we wanted to build the simplest business possible. And we thought, well, if we lend money to prime consumers who are on the whole repay, we don't need to build a great collections function. So that saves one thing to do because losses won't come for six to nine, 12 months, you know, in any event. So that's one less thing to worry about. And it's, it makes the business operationally more complex. And actually, if you look back at one of the biggest criticisms that Prosper had, one, I think we've proven right, that they really can answer right. People did get very upset when they lost money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but two, the, the complaint was then directed at the company because the perception was the company was doing a, a bad job collecting the money. So I mean, I used to to read the chat forums at the Prosper site before they got removed, and the the, the angst was more around what's this company doing about this? They're not doing anything. Right. You no, know, I've found you know on the internet, I've found the borrower I know who lives at twenty three Acacia Avenue, um, <laughs> and and I know he's I know he's got a new car. Why why isn't Prosper going around and getting the money off him? And of course, you can't do that. No, that's not a practical suggestion. Yeah. But but I think the noise and the the loss of goodwill was enormous because the perception was the business wasn't in control and wasn't wasn't acting on its customers' best interests. And so we didn't have any of that. And, uh, and so it was nothing to do with being really clever and foreseeing the uh, the, the, the subprime crash. And I wish we, well, I wish we could say it was, but it wasn't. Right. It was the conservatism based around thinking that we didn't operationally want to deal with a lot of defaults and we didn't want our new asset class, which depended completely on trust, to be blown up by the noise of, 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 of losses occurring. Mm-hmm. And I think lastly, and, and equally importantly, actually all of us were 
slightly averse to the idea of, of lending money to people who, in many cases, couldn't repay it. We just thought it was distasteful. Right. And, you know, none of us thought we're building a business here to actually make people's lives worse. And I think, you know, subprime lending executed badly actually generally makes people's lives worse rather than better. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think prime lending to finance people's uh, hopes, dreams, and aspirations and projects to improve their life is, is much more socially beneficial. Right. Right. So then let's, let's, let's fast forward a, a few years then. You, you actually you become CEO of Zopia, you're CEO for, for many years. You bring in uh, a Capital One executive, uh, Jadev, who we've had, on, we had on the show a couple of years ago. And uh, one thing I'm curious about, and I've never heard the answer to this, when you, you, you brought Jadev in, obviously to a, a senior position, was it Jadev that brought the idea that Hmm, Zopa should should become a bank one day, or should or should have a banking division. Was that, or, or was was that percolating before JDev's arrival? Uh, no, it wasn't percolating before, and it, it wasn't his idea, and it wasn't my idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I, mean, I think I think we all have to be very honest in life about what what are what are our ideas. No, I mean JDev joined as COO in uh, right. in 2015, and uh, you know, with hindsight, has turned into the most you know extraordinarily lucky and and, and good hire. Life is all about hiring good people, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of luck involved, and you can, you can you can put as much effort and energy into doing it well, but there's still luck involved. And and there's always been a great meeting of minds from from, you know, from when we first met through to today. And what we're looking for in hiring him was someone who had uh, a background in a, in bigger businesses where he understood the value and benefits of structure uh, and so sort of a degree more formality, because we were by then. Sort of 100 people and still running in that slightly chaotic startup style mm-hmm. and and i was getting frustrated as the ceo because doubling the headcount didn't double the productivity of the business and therefore we were getting sort of diminishing returns from our investment and i just thought i needed some help and uh he had a ex- really interesting background because as you know he's got a background steeped in uh, credit risk management but the, the capital one they tend to make their risk analysts into marketing people as well so you understood both sides of the business in fact they, they sort of meet in the middle in, in capital one so i think it's a really interesting um, structure but it but he'd also managed quite big divisions of the business so he'd run the collections practice you know which was hundreds of people mm-hmm. and you know with performance management and all that kind of stuff uh, which was all new to us so there was a huge so that, that, there was great benefit in bringing that kind of skill and experience, but, but we clearly wanted someone who had an entrepreneurial flair as well. And that, that makes the, the population rather small. And it's probably not so difficult to hire people with the right level of operational experience, but for hiring them with, with some entrepreneurial flair as well, and, and that sort of startup culture, as opposed to you know, big company bureaucracy culture, was, was, was the challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's where we got very lucky. Um, so when you joined, you effectively took over managing pretty well all the internal functions of the business and I became much more externally focused and after a year we looked at each other and thought well actually you know you're sort of running most of the company why don't you become the CEO and uh, and I I became chairman but at that point what we did day to day didn't change Mm -hmm. and I carried on managing some external relationships and he carried on managing uh, the internal affairs of the company But, but the promotion was really recognition what a brilliant job he'd done and the fact that he had effectively taken over most of the management of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over time, uh, I, I began to hand over some of those relationships and took a, a you know, over time, a, more of a setback and became a more conventional 
not an executive. Right. So, so you've got, you got to answer my question, though. So how, where did the idea come from? Oh, sorry. The bank? Sorry. Yes. <laughs> That's okay. Um, well, I, I actually can't remember where it came from. Uh, I mean, it, it came out, actually, I think it came out of board discussions. So it shows the value of a good board. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were playing in an increasingly prime world where the cost of, uh, you know, the, the, the headline price charged by prime lenders was on a, you know, ever, ever downward trend. And it's becoming increasingly challenging to sort of uh, meet the cost of that lending and, and offer a, a reasonable peer-to-peer return given the risks involved in peer-to-peer lending. So that was what sort of made us start to think about it. But we also had a, 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 a keenness to expand the product set. And th- th- this is perhaps where Jedi's experience was more relevant in the sense that he came out of Capital One's credit card company. So his, his DNA was credit cards. He'd always wanted to try and find a way to introduce credit card lending into, into Zopa. And he'd identified quite quickly that even before he joined, we'd built you know, very capable risk management systems. Uh, he was quite impressed by what he, what he found, very good data analytics, um, and good user, user experience, such that we win lots of awards for the quality of our service for our personal loans. So we had some building blocks that suggested we understood consumer credit, we understood how to price it, and we understood how to present it to customers and sell it. So it seemed natural to think what other consumer credit categories are there that are big. Well, obviously credit cards. And we struggled and struggled and struggled to work out a way to fund credit cards through peer-to-peer investing because a peer-to-peer investor understandably wants to return on his or her money all the time. And, and, and a credit card is a facility that goes up and down. Mm-hmm. So you've got to have the money available to lend. And ultimately, we came to the conclusion that the best funding vehicle for a credit card business would be a bank funded by retail deposits. Right. So that was the, that was the, the, the sort of the genesis of, of, of the idea. Now, once, once we come up with the idea of the bank, obviously, JDEV then you know, really uh, latched onto and ran with it because, because it became a solution to something that I think he'd, he'd always thought that Zopa should ultimately move, move towards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, credit card lending rather than necessarily taking bank deposits. Right, right. So, just so maybe you could explain to listeners exactly how Zopa is structured these days because you, I mean, you, you have got preliminary approval for a banking license. So I haven't really started yeah. that up, but there's, from my understanding, is that there's like two, the two entities that are, are, are completely separate now with separate boards, separate CEOs. And just explain exactly how, how it works these days. So, so we'd always uh, had one business. So Zopo actually had a holding company structure, but that's not relevant really to your listeners. But, but we had one business, and that was our peer-to-peer business. So we had one board, one CEO, uh, and, and a set of shareholders that were interested in that one business. It became very clear that the, the regulators would want to see a separate business applying for a bank license and getting a bank license and being operated as a bank. And as soon as you start separating it, you then in, in, enter into a sort of a challenging the question of how do you manage the conflicts of interest between two different businesses, and you can do it, uh, you can do it while retaining them in the same business with sort of very detailed service agreements between different bits of the business, or or you can choose to separate them uh, for governance purposes and allow those two businesses to interact via you know complicated service arrangements and, and, and contracts, and that's what we decided to do, and you know it satisfied the regulators' need to see a bank that was separate. Uh, and they didn't want to see directors on that. They didn't want to see shareholders on that bank board. They wanted to see a, a majority of independence plus management. Mm-hmm. So it became quite clear quite quickly that I wouldn't be 
the right chairman of that business. So we went out and hired. So I, I think I've seen to spend most of the last couple of years hiring hiring board members. Um, <laughs> so we built a bank board, uh, which is independent, got its own very capable chairman, and now four independent directors, including him. And that meant that all of a sudden we couldn't, as shareholders and you know, the holding company group, manage the peer-to-peer business uh, alongside that because that wouldn't be appropriate governance, um, having you know, the bank reporting into the group, but the group directly operating a peer-to-peer business. So we therefore had to create another board to uh, steer and, and, and provide the governance framework for the peer-to-peer business. And, and that's the board that Christine Farnish, who I know you've also interviewed, mm-hmm. uh, became the chair. And then that had to have a majority of independent directors, so we went and hired uh, three independent directors for that business. And, and, and that left the group board effectively uh, being the place where shareholders sit and ultimately, you know, long-term strategy is discussed. Uh, but the actual operation of the businesses occurs at subsidiary level. And as you say, we've got two, Jadev is the CEO of the bank. Uh, and Natasha Weir is the CEO of the Pitchbit business. Right, right. And so I know you stepped down as chairman in February, I believe. But uh, are you? So that was the last bit of um, that was the last bit of board building I did. So having built the, the sort of you know the bank board uh, and the Pitchbit board, we then sat down and thought, well, what should the group board look like? Right. And what should the direction of travel of that look like? And I think ultimately that will involve a smaller board with fewer investors on it. Certainly, the PRA would like to see. You know, the, the regulators, I think when there's a dual board structure of a holding company and, uh, and a bank, they, they obviously want to know that the right decisions are occurring in the right places and that the group board doesn't meddle and isn't too, doesn't, doesn't play too big a role in, in the management of the business. And, and, they, and the, one way to satisfy them is to make that increasingly independent as well. So that, that's the next sort of journey we're on. And step one on that was to recruit an independent chairman. Of the group, so I hired. I, we identified Gordon McCallum and hired him earlier on this year as the first fully independent director who sits on the group board. The chair of the bank and the chair of the head of business also sits on the group board. Right, and so you're uh, you're on the group Gordon's board. Anyone who, you're on the group board as well. Yeah, is that so I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm uh, yes, I, I am. I mean, I'm. I'm obviously a significant investor in the company, and 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 hopefully have you know, the, my experience has some benefit which I can bring to that to that board. But, but I think, you know, the direction of travel was to create a, a more independent board. And I also to begin to position, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but begin to position the company on, on the journey towards potential IPA, right. Um, right. Where, where you would require. And therefore, you want to begin to build a team. It's going to take a couple of years at least to do so, but you want to begin to position yourself for that process. Right, right. Okay, so so moving moving beyond Zopa, you've got, you've got a... Um, Many business interests these days are beyond uh, beyond Zopa, and I just want to run through a couple of these because there's several that uh, are very. I'm sure our listeners would be very interested in. And the first ones I want to talk about is market invoice. I mean, we 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 had Anil on the on the podcast last year, and you know, it's, it's a company that is probably pretty is pretty well known around the world these days. But so tell us. Tell us why you chose Market Invoice and what uh, and what just some uh, an update on that company. Well, so Market Invoice is an invoice discounting plan. It, 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 so it's not a peer-to-peer lending business, but it, but it uses uh, money from a variety of sources, including individuals, high net worths, and, and, and some institutions. So there's a sort of slightly peer-to-peer flavour to its funding. Uh, it doesn't lend because it, it buys invoices as a discount. 
provide working capital. So it's not strictly speaking a lending business, but ultimately, you know, it's a credit business in the sense that um, we have to make decisions as to which invoices are going to be repaid. Um, so we provide working capital to to SMEs. I knew I've known Anil Anilia, the, uh, his co-founder, for many years um, through initially the PSB Finance Association uh, and just generally, you know, the London fintech scene. And I've always liked the guys and thought they had an interesting business. And they uh, took on some some fairly uh, they took on some venture capital funding from a, an investor I know well, Northside, and uh, you know that that often comes with suggestion to start creating some independence in, in governance on on the board, and therefore I was sort of approached, if you like, from two different angles. From I knew the founders, and I knew one of the investors, and so I went to have a chat with them and and, and like what I saw and and was interested in in the thought that I could, the market invoice was at a stage of the journey that I had been through, um, made tons of mistakes, but hopefully learned some stuff from those mistakes and, and therefore would have something to bring in the scaling of another fintech business using technology to uh, uh, and a different funding structure to provide value to a different set of customers, but some of many of the same principles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been chair there for about two and a half years and, and uh, had a, really enjoyed it. And, and we've been, Quite successful uh, in the last year in raising substantial amounts of money now from from Barclays and Santander, amongst others, to lead the charge in 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 actually. I mean, I think the Barclays partnership is probably the deepest bank fintech partnership that we've seen in the UK, mm-hmm. where actually the bank is saying uh, we will introduce our customers to a fintech business to provide a service that we simply can't provide. And they've got lots of customers, and we've got a service that their customers would welcome. Often a challenge for fintech businesses is you know, cost of acquisition and distribution. Well, Barclays have got a million SME customers. Uh, so the challenge, of course, is then getting the, the, the huge business to work well with an agile startup, and it's very early days. But we're really encouraged by the volume of, of, of leads we're getting from Barclays and the quality of the leads and, and the quality of engagement from their regional staff. So, their, their regional managers, regional directors, who are the people who interact with their customers, have engaged. Now we've now sort of finished the national rollout, in extraordinarily deeply, and, and it's really exciting how that partnership's going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it is. It's one of the. I always say it's it's one of the most important partnerships that in in you know in all of uh, a marketplace lending. It's just a very you know it's a it's it, it's you've got. A very well established bank, and it's a deep partnership, as you say. And I think it's uh, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see what uh, what comes of that. So then, I want to move on to Credit Tech, which is another one where you're a chairman of the board, and you know it's 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 a different kind of organisation. Although it's it's been obviously it's a, it's been around the online lending space for for, for many many years, and it's you know what. How did how did that come about? Because it's a different company. I think it's based in Germany and operates primarily, I believe, in in developing countries. Just tell us. Well, the tell biggest us how... markets for credit tech are actually the biggest markets are Poland and Spain. Okay, uh, but yes, we have we we also have a business in Russia. We have a business most recently launched in, in India. The original thesis of, of credit tech, sort of you know from way back when, was that it was going to um, operate in in pretty well exclusively the developing world. And I think they found that very difficult. And by the time I joined, most of that had been closed or was in the process of being, of being closed. So I was approached by, uh, by the, uh, some, some of the investors. So Credit Tech had raised substantial amounts of money from the private equity community. And 
in some ways, it, it was a sort of still a venture capital stage business. And I, I mean, I think one of the difference being that venture back businesses are inherently have sort of more execution risk associated with them and a different risk reward profile. And the private equity uh, investors tend to come a bit later when there's a more proven business model and it's generating cash. So in some ways, I hope they wouldn't mind me saying this, but I think some of the private equity investors invested a little bit too early and were caught up perhaps in a little bit of uh, uh, you know, desire to participate in the fintech story without really understanding you know, the, the, the maturity of the business. So I walked into actually quite a difficult situation. And for me, that was part of the challenge. So I was keen to work with private equity investors. I think I know the venture community well. Uh, you know, raised quite a lot of venture capital from a number of people over the years and, and on a few venture-backed businesses boards. But I knew much less about the private equity world. And the PE world is, is quite a closed shop. I, I think the, the sort of, the, as I made a decision to operate in a more sort of portfolio way with doing more uh, board-type work than, than executive work, I, I thought it'd be interesting to try and find a, a private equity-backed business. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say it's a closed shop, I mean that they typically private equity boards are made up of ex-CEOs and CFOs of private equity-backed businesses who've done well. And, and I, you know, I have never been private equity-backed, so therefore I wasn't in that, in that pool. And I think the fact that it was, they, they acknowledged that, one, it was probably an earlier stage business than they had thought it was when they, when they invested in it. And two, it frankly wasn't doing very well. And the concerns around, around the management team, you know, it was often the case, but, but, but you know, there's some challenges. I think my, my background in having scaled a, a consumer lending business um, was, was helpful. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I joined it as a, as a, as a real challenge. And, and it's been a challenge. I mean, I've been there for just over a year now. Um, we had to regrettably replace the management team, but brought in some really capable new executives who are turning the business around, have replatformed it, you know, uh, relaunched it on a new technology platform, um, top to bottom. And the business is, uh, has turned a corner, which is really satisfying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. I've certainly noticed that there's there's lots of new names there on the on the management team at Credit Tech. But anyway, we are we're running out of time, and I I, I do want to get to a couple more things. I know you've got other board board positions that we we won't have time to cover. I'm afraid, but I want to talk about UK fintech for a little bit because it really has been on a roll, particularly the last. I don't know, six to 12 months, there's been lots of really big funding rounds, you know, particularly in the, in the sort of, you know, the challenger bank space. So what, what's your view on the sector is, do you feel like, I mean, the valuations are getting ahead of themselves or do you feel like this is all going to, and, you know, it's all, these companies are all going to do well and it's going to be, uh, it, these just, these, these valuations are justified. Well, I'm going to disappoint you because I'm not going to talk about valuations. I mean, valuations <laughs> is in the eyes of the holder. And I don't, I don't think it's ever a good idea for anyone to comment on other people's valuations. Other than to say that I think the market of investors places great value in businesses that consumers like that potentially could you know, disrupt huge industries. And banking is definitely one of them. So there's, you know, there's, some, there's some logic to valuing a business which is acquiring customers at a great rate of knots valuing that highly and, and valuing the fact that the customers recommend it to their friends and therefore marketing costs are very low. But, you know, they're all very good signs, which I think do support valuing businesses like that highly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I, I mean, I think, is there room for all of them? Probably not. I mean, I don't think there's a room for all the incumbent banks either. I mean, I think there will be some challenging times 
for some of the very big banks, the ones that aren't able to adopt, uh, aren't able to adapt to changing consumer behaviors, changing consumer needs and wants. And I think the institutions that go on to do well, the large institutions that go on to do well, are the ones that, and I don't think they've got it today, but, but create some agility in what they do and adaptability in what they do. And I think that means pretty big investments in technology. And I don't mean you know, putting lipstick on a pig and, and, and nice, nice front ends uh, served by APIs. I mean, actually, some real engineering of, of back-end systems that allow agile product development. Because I think that has to go all the way through the company. You can't just have a team of people who come up with fantastic user experiences at the front end underpinned by ancient, creaky legacy systems that, that, that are really hard to change and adapt. Right. So, so I, think, I think you're going to have to see some of the well, I think all the big players have to adapt to that, and some will not make some will not make that great. So I think there will be, uh, I hesitate to use the word failure, but there will certainly be a, a diminishing of important in importance in some of the major institutions and some of the startups of today. I think will become household names and will go on to do extraordinarily well. Probably not all of them. Right. I certainly wouldn't want to pick one. I think they're going to do well, and the ones that aren't. Right. Well, apart from Zopa, of course. <laughs> Apart from Zopa, of course. Well, I think we're in a completely unique position. So we're, we're, we're in a position where we have the agility in terms of our tech stack, um, and we've built all the technology ourselves for the bank. And if I think back to the quality of technology that we built, we used when we built Zopa in the first place, we've always built our own technology pretty well always since, since, since very early on. And the quality of, of the technology we're building today is absolutely leading in any sector, not just financial services, whereas you can necessarily always say that about the past. Mm-hmm. So we're well positioned in, in terms of technology backbone. And we have a product which customers love. So, so we win all these awards for customer services and have an NPS score in, you know, well into the mid-70s, which is extraordinary financial services. Um, at scale, you know, we've got half a million customers. This isn't, this isn't just a few people. Yet we've also got a business. So, we, so I think we can acquire customers in the same way as some of the other challenges. But we've also got a business that actually performs the bit of banking that tends to make money over the long run, which is called lending. Right. So, so I think we're in, a, in an extremely strong position mm-hmm. um, to, to build a business that, you know, that operates as an effective and profitable lender. Uh, we may well never have a current account. Therefore, we may well never have uh, tens of millions of customers, but certainly single-digit millions of customers. Right. And, 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 and uh, it, it, as, as of yet, I think that makes us unique in the challenger sector. Right, right. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time, Giles. I could chat with you for another hour, but uh, we're going to have to leave it there. I, I, I always enjoy chatting with you, and I appreciate you coming on the show today. Not at all, Peter. Really good to speak to you. Yeah, okay. Thanks. See you. Thanks, bye. You know what Giles just said there about about lending, I think, is interesting. And and these digital banks that are getting funded both in in Europe and in the US, many of them actually don't have any kind of lending operation. I mean, some do, but it is most of them do not. And it's, you know. As Giles said, it's a, it's it's one of the it's it's a profitable business. You look at banking and how and and some of the largest banks are some of the most profitable businesses in the world. And the reason it is one of the reasons that is is because lending is a profitable business. And I expect we will see many of these digital banks, the ones that really uh, become profitable and 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 successful, will be those that have lending operations. That's that's my theory anyway. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. 
Today's show was sponsored by Lendit Fintech Europe 2019, Europe's leading event for innovation in financial services. It's happening September 26th and 27th at the Business Design Centre in London. Registration is now open as well as speaker applications. Find out more by going to lendit.com slash Europe.